0: In the 20th century we have seen a loss in the Roman Catholic Church of the Roman rite, the Roman language and even the Roman architecture. This is a loss of Romanitas. Today on the One Peter 5 podcast we're going to talk about what is Romanitas with our Romanitas correspondent Vincenzo Randazzo. Osama, Jesus is King. Welcome to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor-in-Chief of 1 Peter 5, and I'm joined today by my friend and brother, Vincenzo Randazzo. How you doing, Fratello? Ben, I'm doing great, Timothy. Thanks for having me on.
1: It's real joy. Uh, it just, I just feel great.
0: Yeah, that's fa- fantastic. Uh, Vincenzo <laughs> and I had the, had the joy of meeting each other in person uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, But he is a Roman and lives in Rome, and as you can see, it is a beautiful setting sun behind Vincenzo, and uh, whereas it's around uh, midday over here in the great state of Michigan. Uh, So today we're going to talk about Romanitas, and this this is something that we've begun to cover at 1 Peter 5. Vincenzo has a number of great videos that he has produced from Rome, as well as articles, and this is... A series that we're doing to combine really a, a coverage of the news from Rome, but also the Roman culture, because as I said, this is something that we are that is under attack, and this is something that's central, as we'll discuss, to uh, our identity as traditional Catholics. So, before we get into our topic, just want to remind everyone that. One Peter five is a nonprofit and we do support or do, we do rely on your support to do what we do. So we do have bills to pay. So if you've profited by one Peter five, please become a monthly donor one Peter com slash donate. So Vincenzo. So first let's try to nail down some of the aspects of what is Romanitas. So let's, let's start with that. What is Romanitas?
1: well, Romanitas is Romanity in Latin. <laughs> I guess is one way you could say it. And um, I think that we are trying to capture a lost culture. I think those of us of our generation that you know, you and me, we have this unique situation where we're rediscovering a uh, our patrimony, our inheritance something that was ours, we've gone up into the attic, we've dust off this beautiful chest, and we're looking inside and we're learning about our, ourselves. We say, wow, this is really true, and I, I see this in my heart. And Romanity, when we talk about Romanitas, we can see that there's a certain way of being a, a culture, a cultus, a, that comes from ancient Rome and the Roman Empire at large, that is uh, that is being lost. And of course, wh- as we go through this trial as a, as a generation, as an age, as a point in history in the church, it's important to see that, that we, uh, we can look back and sort of discover and unfold and unravel what might have been lost and looking back, looking upon tradition. And a lot of that came from the Roman thing, the Roman empire itself. So I don't want to I guess maybe if I'm being a little bit um, abstract, that's part of what it is. It's this exploration we're doing together. We're taking the that word and we're bringing it down to flesh. Uh, That is, you know, Romanity, this concept is of old. How did the what did early Christians really think? How did they really behave? What was the Roman Empire really like when it was face to face with Christianity through persecutions, through the embracing of the faith? We're going to go on this adventure of Romanity together.
0: Yes. The, uh, if you've been to the Midnight Mass, I'm sure you everyone's heard in uh, the reading from the Roman Martyrology, which speaks of in the 42nd, actually, it starts with um, the 752 from the founding of the city of Rome, the 42nd year in the empire of Octavian Augustus, when the whole world was at peace. So it speaks about this providential moment that is connected with the Roman Empire. So there's something in providential that God chose to build His church, chose to become incarnate at a particular time that was connected with the Roman Empire because He decided to use Rome as the city and as the culture as a vehicle of His own divine grace. Now, you, what was that thing from um, Remy Brock that you had uh, shared with yeah, me? Yeah, when
1: when we had discussed so the term romanity uh has been used by a he's he's a modern scholar he's still alive his name is is remy Brog he's french and he highlights this notion that you know i think a lot of especially right now in, in conservative movements we when we defend the west or when we think of the west and uh and western values it's sort of become cliche to say hey this is a a Greco uh, Judeo Christian marriage, right? You hear that a lot. Like it's this the West is this marriage between uh, the, the Greek philosophy and Judeo Christian values. They, they came together in the West. But Remy Bragg brings up this it's not so much against that concept that it, I think he affirms that to be true, but he says there's, there's something a little bit um, subtle but important about Roman culture itself, Romanity for him, is to be an eccentric culture. That is, to view yourself in a situation of secondarity to a previous greater culture. Romans were like this. Now, just to to break that down, one phrase Remy Bragg uses that kind of condenses the whole thing is Romans thought of themselves as Greek compared to anything barbarian, and they thought of themselves as barbarians compared to anything Greek. So they had this great reverence for the, a previous empire, the Greek empire. And of course they had reverence for other previous empires too. You could see that in the architecture of Rome. They, they have obelisks from, uh, from, the, uh, from the Egyptian empire. They had this notion that they were on the shoulder of giants, you know? And that subtlety in Romanity is, is an important piece of what it is, how we are in the West. We're often viewing ourselves in a situation of secondarity, from some sort of previous greater culture. And we say greater because we think of it as greater. Like when you think of the French Revolution, right? Th- this, th- what was Western or Roman about them is they said, hey, we want to hearken back to some kind of pre-Christian pagan ideal, right? We want to bring that back because that was actually great. And we see it today too. There's, there's this sense of, it's this kind of a, a um, inferiority complex to what it was like to be, uh, you know, indigenous Americans or indigenous in, in South America. Or, and we need to bring that back. We need to, that attitude was something the, something the Romans had and it sort of, it collided with something that was actually uh, right about Christianity. And, and that's where, for Remy Bragg, that brought about a new, beautiful culture in the West, Christian culture.
0: Yeah, it's it's the a perfect marriage already being arranged by God's providence because he created Israel to be this particular this very particularity, the, really the exact opposite of that attitude. But Rome becomes sort of this principle of it receiving the divine culture created by God in Israel. But in particular, as you just said, the 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 Greek culture is what already sort of is married to the Roman culture before the Mosaic even comes in and i want to read from um a, a passage from virgil's aeneid which yes. expresses this perfectly um which is when aeneas goes to the underworld and he's talking to his father this is in book six and he speaks of the greeks like this he says others no doubt hammer out bronze and they draw living faces out of stone they plead cases better, and they chart the rising of every star in the sky and so they're Speaking about the the beauty of Greek culture, the architecture, the the philosophy. But he says, your mission, Roman, is to rule the world. These will be your arts, to establish peace, to spare the humbled, and to conquer the proud. And so this is the Roman genius is to collect the greatness of Greece and to... uh, administer it and, and and systematize it now this let me read this other quote here this is from emmanuelovich poznov this is a russian catholic 20th century historian he says this page 210 this is this is from the book the history of the church until the great schism of 1054 which i think this is great he says the greeks are not gifted by nature with the ability to govern and rule During the golden age of Greece, they could not form a single solid political entity with their numerous publics. So we have the Greek empire, Alexander the Great conquers all the way to India, but immediately his entire empire splits into a a thousand pieces with the Ptolemies in the south and everything. Um, Whereas the Romans are the ones who begin to bring out this administrative unity. Uh, The Greeks rather have this philosophical genius, and this goes into the, the Greek language has all these subtleties and nuances you have this greek term called logos which has all these nuances in it and that's the the term that uh saint john used in the beginning was the logos and the logos was made flesh and he the 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 greek language was chosen by god to express the mysteries of our of our religion Hmm. um but the roman tongue the lat the tongue uh latin language is is much more practical than that much more systematizing um here's what uh says the greeks if the greeks had a philosophical genius then the roman has a juridical genius the romans were not advanced in intellectual speculation they much more preferred its practical application romans have a very strong administrative and organizing talent thanks to this talent they introduced order and created a system for their empire so they recognize this second secondarity they recognize the greatness of the greeks they imitated them in many different ways. They adopted their gods, architecture, philosophy, all sorts of things. But then they systematized the Greeks by using their genius of administrative unity. So thoughts on that,
1: Vincenzo? Yeah, many thoughts. I th- I think that that's, that's right on. It's exactly right. I guess here's what I'd say first is it's hard to conceive of God when he acts for him to act without some sort of reason. I mean, there's there's. It's, it's this beautiful thing we get to do as Christians is when God does something, we get to say, why did he do this? What does this mean? And, and, it, and it teaches us about the world we're in, right? God becomes man. What, why would he do that? What does that mean? God, not only does he become a man, uh, man but he becomes a man. What does that mean for men or maleness, right? So that, that kind of uh, it, it's a very Christian thing to question in that way, humbly, in order to learn. And so then we think here too, so why did he come into the Roman Empire, right? Why in Acts of the Apostles are, is there this movement towards Rome? Why do we have Peter and Paul become the, traditionally now we understand them as the new twins of Rome. They're not Remus and Romulus anymore. It's Peter and Paul. And where you see Peter in Rome, you, do, you see Paul not far away, right? Um, there's this... Uh, you know, where Remus and Romulus may have failed, Peter and Paul, they succeed. So God is being very particular. And this is why, I mean, you know, I get criticized a lot to bring everything back to the liturgy. I know uh, probably uh, uh, many of your readers have that same experience, but um, you can't mess with an unrolling story. It's so bad to just mess with it because there's something very beautiful happening here. So the fact that, That the liturgy is becoming formed and it's germinating and and unfolding organically in the Roman Latin speaking context. Is God doing something for a particular reason? You know, it's uh, it's 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 awesome. It's so awesome. And so I guess uh, to, to bring it back around is why Rome? Why? Why Rome? And what's the relevance of Rome? In a world where location and physicality is less and less important, those of us who love tradition, all the more do we need to ask the question, what's important about this place for Christianity itself? You know, I don't mean to go long, but I, yeah. I want to point out, I'm behind me, I wonder if I could do it from the camera here. This is the church of Santa Gala. Okay? Santa Gala is an old Roman uh, virgin and martyr. Actually, I learned this recently. I I don't know for sure. Her father's name was Symmachus, and he was a Roman politician. I don't know if he was the same Symmachus who debated Ambrose uh, over the altar of victory, which is an article I wrote for 1 Peter 5. when I saw that, I was like, well, that would just be a crazy um, coincidence, you know. But, I mean, here is this young pagan woman who is Roman, right, and Roma- Romanity, that is being Roman, is in her family. And what it, you know, t- this kind of upward moving towards this ideal is what Romans are all about, right? Seeing themselves in a situation of secondary to a greater culture. She became a Christian. She said, "I'm going to become a Christian." It, it wasn't this isolated thing. It was it's just, it was just, it was a part of what it meant to be Roman. And of course, her witness as a as a martyr makes her a very important saint here in Rome.
0: So I thought I'd bring that up as well. Fantastic. Excellent. Uh, and so the, the genius of this uh, Roman administrative unity is what you just mentioned. Your article is called Roman Trads and the Traditional Toleration of Demons. And this refers to the Roman genius that existed before Christ, wherein the Roman Empire conquered a people and they merely requested, merely uh, requested them to pinch incense to Caesar. And then they can keep all their own local customs. That was the innovation of the Romans, which made their empire so great in a natural sense. It's because they could, they could minister at all these different peoples across the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And, and they could keep their local customs. Now this gets baptized. This whole concept is baptized by the Roman Catholic Church. So that now the Holy See in Rome, operating with Romanitas, can then administer all of these local churches across the whole world and let them keep their local customs while only preserving what is essential, namely the confession of the faith, the Orthodox confession of the faith. But we see, I think, with the suppression of the Latin mass, we really see a loss of Romanity, not only in the fact that. You know, we lose the Latin tongue and the Roman rite itself. But only even in the whole approach, the idea that you should uh, suppress that and that there needs to be a rigid uniformity—you can't, you can't tolerate the local customs—that would be a loss of this Romanitas idea. Romanitas would actually dictate that uh, the traditional Romanitas, that these local liturgies should be preserved and kept intact. Um,
1: I think key to that is this approach of humility that is that's why I, I said i said the term like it's kind of an inferiority complex um but this humility when you look upon the past so in the in the debate between Symmachus and uh ambrose in this article uh that that we're talking about so Ambr- saint ambrose and Symmachus. Both as they debate whether they should burn incense at the altar. Of course, Ambrose wins. No, we will get rid of this. We won't be worshiping demons. Both of them do have a certain humility, though, for the ideal, the, their, the, this upward movement. Like Ambrose is not saying, no, Roman stuff is garbage. It's trash. It's not. We're, we're creating a new thing, which is kind of the approach you see sometimes today. He says, no, no, no. This is in accordance with the story. This is the story that's unraveling, you know, that's that's the attitude of Ambrose. And I think we would do well (laughs) to have more of that humility in our approach and it really in all things,
0: you know. Absolutely. So do you want to talk architecture and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about administrative, uh, the administrative, it's interesting. Okay, so God choosing in this aspect, he's choosing the Romans and Rome. I, 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 say, I qualify in that way because God does choose peoples at different times in different places. And they, they get to wear that, um, that selection, I guess I could say, from God. It's, it's, a, it's a point of pride. It's not a hierarchy. I'm not pitting Romans or Romanness, Romanity against anything else. It's just it's an interesting thing to, uh, to look at. And the Romans themselves, in terms of them being good ad- administrators, they were good at building stuff and moving stuff. And that's kind of, it's interesting that he chose that sort of people. So, I mean, you think of like where the forum, the Roman forum is, like where the Colosseum is, all of that was a very swampy area, even with there being a lake in a certain area. The The Romans were able to, to move the world, move the land, such that they could drain the swamp, <laughs> a different context from what it's used today. They were able to drain that area uh, and they were able to build and, you know, Concrete uh, cement would have been the, the new technology of their day, and they were able to use this to create something um, uh, to create this city and then it sort of it reflects also that way of being in terms of architecture. There is a kind of architectonic sense to Roman law and administration on the other side of that is the function and beauty of Roman architecture, which the church thereby inherited, you know so Lo and behold, when when the West becomes Christian, when the Roman Empire becomes Christian and we and there's this Roman culture that loves to build things and loves to make things beautiful. That is right in conformity with what it means to be Christian, you know, and I'm right here with this uh, pointing back to Santa Gala behind me. This is actually a Roman basilica style church. I almost want to risk lifting my uh, camera here. Maybe I could do it. It's not so bad. So it's, you can see the church there. It's in the, I'll move my head this way. It's in the Roman Basilica style. And that, that style predates Christianity. Roman Basilicas would have been a, uh, a place, a a kind of a common place, not particularly a religious place, but a common place where people could come and discuss and maybe there'd be assemblies and whatnot. But that became the place that uh, where Christian worship happened. And there was also a kind of marrying it with the temple in Jerusalem, right? So there's that bringing those two together with a high altar and a, um, and a separation between the altar and the people. So that all of that takes form in, uh, in the architecture, the art and architecture of, uh, of Rome. And it's beautiful to see that story unfold over time and see artists sort of work with humility looking on the past as art becomes different and changes and matures, just like the liturgy, just like the human person, just like the doctrine of the faith, Uh, all the way until now, you know, well, until now. Now we have a, a rupture, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe that's opinion, I suppose. But if you look at Christian art and architecture that's now, that's from the modern age, it's very clear that it's so vastly different from architecture and art that we would have seen even just 80, 90 years ago, you know?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a a rupture with the past. There's also just a rupture with nature itself because there's a loss of any sort of realism to the, the, the modern art, which is seems very violent towards representation of nature. Uh, because it's it's representing it in in a in an ugly way um and the forms of architecture are just violent to violent to the spirit it's uh not something that that resonates an eternal logos it's something that resonates an internal chaos
1: well let me let me sort of bring this uh bring this down practically uh, in a certain way. I'll, I, and we can bring up some images here to, to give some context. But, you know, as with, with the d- development of doctrine, that unfolding, that organic development that we're all very familiar with, that we love about the church and her teaching and her tradition, that slow growing like an oak, in terms of, of art and architecture, you know, one might wonder, well, what sort of changes and dramatic changes do we see over the centuries? Initially, for example, you don't see the crucifix much because the, at the time, many, many people were still being crucified, you know, in, in the early church. This was a huge scandal to show the cross, right? When, when people were ready and they were able to understand how, what a deep reality the cross is, that, that really doesn't appear in, our, in architecture in the Christian world for like Three, maybe four hundred years, you know. So that's just one small example. I kind of want to push forward, though, to go all the way forward. Think about altars. Uh, Let's think about altars for as an example. So we we're facing together east, right? Because we know that's this zillion uh, pieces of symbolism in there. Not not only from scripture, but but from tradition, all sorts of things. Why we faced east? Why we're facing together? why the priest is is there at, uh, at the high altar. But something sort of interesting that artists uh, had to deal with is what is the priest facing? What is he looking at? And so I thought I would bring up to juxtapose two altar pieces that we could look at together. One's from Caravaggio and one is from Michelangelo. Uh, Michelangelo is before Caravaggio in time. And they're both kind of, um, I'd say, they're, they they have the spirit, I would say, of humility looking on the past while still while still seeing how the story is unfolding in their own way. And you might call that kind of like testing the boundaries, but in a humble way, not doing anything dramatic like we might see today with the stripping of churches and, and whatnot. So perhaps I can share. Um, let's start with the Michelangelo just because he's before in time. Is that fair? Yeah, go ahead. OK, cool. So. I'm going to pull up this uh, image and I guess you'll know when to, you'll see it first, right? Oh, I have to hit share. There we go. Or you're you're able to share already. Oh, yeah, we're all set. Okay, hold on. So, okay, so we, we're looking here at a three dimensional image of the Pietà, of Michelangelo's Pietà. Okay. And so you, you can see that, right, Timothy? Yeah. Do I need to make it bigger or anything?
0: Like, uh you could probably make yeah there we go yeah that's the best. Go. okay excellent okay
1: so you know what this is a uh, modern technology taking a look at this the lighting is a little bit odd it, it kind of has a mary a little bit dark but we we can really recognize in this uh in this sculpture by michelangelo if i'm not mistaken i think he was 24 when he sculpted this piece and this is made as an altar altar piece now it sits in saint peter's basilica right as you as you walk into saint peter's basilica if you're facing the high altar it's off on a side altar on the right and there's a you know a huge pe- plexiglass piece in front of it because there was i think there was a couple attacks on it one for sure uh, that some crazy woman had gone and attacked it with a hammer so you know, you're not able to come very close to it but my point is here is michelangelo built this as a piece that a priest would stare at on the high altar. Okay. So he understood that he was building a piece that fits into a liturgical context. And that's not a small deal to a Catholic artist. That's a very big deal. That's a huge deal. You know, I'm building something that will be present at the greatest miracle we can think of. That is the consecration of the Eucharist. So this is in the mind of the artist who's commissioned with an altar, with a, with a, an altarpiece. piece. Now, what I want to say is, so if you can imagine being a priest, you would be staring... Uh, man, it's kind of hard to move for some reason, but I'll, I'll get it. I'll figure this out. So you'd be staring sort of up at it. I wonder if I pull on this side. sort of like a... Or maybe if I pull up on uh, this way. Oh, over here a little bit. Okay, so you would be staring up at it. It wouldn't be exactly like this, but I'm unable to move it in the way I want. But you'd be staring up, Okay. And we see Christ's hand coming down, and you have Mary. She's here, you know, looking on you with that gentle, beautiful sort of offering face. And you even see some of her fingers here. It's very, it's very much she's offering her son unto you. And at the elevation, the Eucharist would actually it would be in right in this area here. Well, of course, depending on how tall you are as a priest, but but it would be you would see the Eucharist here as a priest, and you'd be meditating about on this body of Christ falling into your presence. Right at the moment of the elevation, right? This, the, the, this uh, climax, you might say, of the mass. So there's another uh, um, uh, arrow you can, you can put in your quiver for why it's so necessary, not only to have beautiful art and architecture, but to have a priest facing this when they're in that moment of a prayer, of deep prayer and deep mir- miraculous happenings here at the, at the mass. So I wanted to, to bring that up because, you know, some people will come look at the Pieta and they'll just say, oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's very beautiful. And Michelangelo is very talented. And of course, you know, he's, he, he would have studied cadavers. You can see how the blood sort of pools around Christ here. It's very impressive, but there's a deeper reality here. That is, this was created to be beheld in the context of the liturgy. So I, I wanted to, uh, to make that clear to everybody. You
0: know? Wow. So the elevation, I can just see that in my, in just imagining it at the elevation. If, if I'm hearing mass and I can see that at the elevation.
1: Right. Yeah. This is what it would. I don't know if you're still looking at it. Truly. Uh, well, really truly
0: the, thing. um it reminds me of the, the double consecration in particular is a symbol of the death of Christ because it's the separation of the body and blood. And, that is the the most one of the most beautiful representations of the death of Christ, right?
1: Uh I thought maybe we go back to our cameras, but I can bring up the sure. Caravaggio yeah, I- now. So yeah, so I sh- I show that, um, and and uh, I th- another thing to highlight there is, in terms of Romanitas, okay, Michelangelo. He's living in a catholic cosmology he's living at a time of deep faith that that not only is he he's swimming in it you know people around him are praying people around him understand the context it's in their language it's in their feast it's a, so this is is the world he lives in which is why it's such a uh, it's such a terrible thing i almost don't want to bring it up because it's so dumb to bring up but it is kind of an important point But, you know, Michelangelo has sort of become a popular thing in uh, art history courses, is to sort of claim Michelangelo as a hero for homosexuality because he was was celibate his whole life. He, uh, of course, in his art, he is focusing on the human person, right, the body, right? Many of his bodies are nude. And so this modern reading that looks back without any humility of the time. There's no sense of his religion. <laughs> this is a man who loved celibacy, who understood his artistry as a vocation, as a calling from God. He gets to participate in creation. This is the way he thought. I mean, he was so I I, I was told this by a scholar poet here in Rome, and, and, and he's become a friend of mine now. He's he's a he's an expert on. Michelangelo's poetry. He was actually a great poet of his day too. And he told me the story about how there were days where Michelangelo would not go outside because he was afraid of seeing a beautiful person because he was so blown away by beauty. And if he would behold someone or someone beautiful, he would just be in awe. He would be so struck. Okay. This is someone who has been given a gift from God. You know, we in the modern age, we, the veil is thick in front of us. We don't see what, what uh, someone with such a gift is able to see, you know.
0: Wow. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, there's, well, why, while you get Caravaggio, uh, let me pr- point out another Romani I, I just remembered something that's interesting. If you perhaps any of our viewers may have wondered if you've been to a high mass. There's an interesting feature at the chanting of the gospel, which is where the deacon goes way off to the left when they bring all the torches. And it seems a little strange because he's he's just facing to the left. Like, why does he do that? And the reason is because in Romanitas, the direction of the north was always the direction towards darkness, towards evil, towards yeah, the barbarians. barbarians. Yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, the, with the Roman history, you, the the north north of the Rhine, north of the Roman Empire, you have just barbarity, uh, barbarians, darkness. Those are my own ancestors. You know, we were tribal. You know, insane. We we actually wanted to become Romans. That's what the barbarians eventually just realized they were. They wanted to join the Roman Empire, uh, so they started joining the army. But that's the reason for the gospel being pointed towards the north. Is because that's the direction of the north is the direction of evil. So we're always they have this beautiful symbol. It's one of my favorite things about the Roman rite is is you know in, like in a low mass you you just switch the gospel book over to the left side of the altar, but so the priest still is facing that way. But it's always facing the gospel towards the evil, and that's that's the what has really um, propelled, uh, especially since Pope Saint Gregory the Great sending the missions all the way to England. The, the missions have gone north into darkness to convert yes. all of Europe to the Catholic faith.
1: Yeah. I love that. I, I just, you know, what comes to mind as you say that is just the idea of deep symbolism that's been time tested is such an important, it's such an important piece to, to protect and to hold. It's so important. We ourselves are symbols. We are images of, of God Himself. We're created in His image. This is why we're so fascinated by these symbolic realities. This is why Christ spoke to us in parables. This is, you know, th- it's it's entering into these deep mysteries. This is why Michelangelo f- felt so honored to be able to uh, bring mystery, the, the mystery of art and beauty, or, or have a kind of conduit towards something so beautiful. I mean, this is what this is what it's all about. I mean, this is this is. I mean, maybe in some sense this is what I love so much about my faith is these moments of just entering into these deep mysteries, discussing them, you know, they're so beautiful. (laughs) You know, it's sort of, I guess on the other side of this, I mean, lately I've been doing a lot better uh, being a joyful person. I mean, thank God for Italian coffee and food, you know, that keeps me uh, happy, but I can get so just depressed when I see how we've been stripped of these things. And we live in a world where it's kind of worships a sort of, i don't know like efficiency or uh, or you know just like everything just has to have uh right this idea of form following function and that's it that's how things are reduced and, and we don't need to decorate things and we don't need to, any sort of beauty it's like you're missing deeper symbolism you know so
0: okay yeah, rant rant
1: over I'll, well if I'll... Something...
0: It's something you can, you, you can actually see one of the, one of the few cities in the United States, which has beautiful architecture is Washington, DC. And the reason is because they are trying to imitate Romanitas. Oh, there's all this Roman yeah, architecture, you know, that, Greek that's architecture. Actually,
1: that's actually a piece that's important. Harkening back to Remy Brog's point is, you know, everything kind that of, we're living in this post Roman time, still, everything is sort of, you know, e pluribus unum. that's, are the American that's the United States motto? It that comes from a Roman motto Plutus one. it's Latin, for God's sake. You know, the the even I mean, all these sort of uh, the dome, you know, the dome, uh, the Capitol Hill that comes from the Capitoline Hill here in Rome. There's all of this, uh, me being from the Detroit area, you know, Campus Martius is the center of Detroit, that comes from Campo Martio, Campus Martius, which is the center uh, of the the. Um, geographical center, you might say, of, uh, of ancient Rome. So we're always sort of looking back to this previous culture. It's it, that's in the West, that is. This is sort of part of who we are. So I have uh, the um, the image here. I, I can pull it up and you can share it whenever you're ready. Go ahead. Okay, so this is the Madonna di Loreto, or, or uh, Our Lady... Our Lady with the Pilgrims, or I think is it Our Lady? Madonna of the Pilgrims, I think is what we call it in English. And um, this is, is this altarpiece was created by Caravaggio. And this, this I'm pulling this up to show you a kind of example of how an artist might push the boundaries and see where this story that God is uh, unfolding, see where it's going. Now, this was a very scandalous image for its time the virgin mary is she's barefoot here you see now remember this is on this is supposed to be anyway on a high altar uh where a priest would be staring at this at the moment of consecration right we can imagine the eucharist might be right in this area at our lord's foot maybe even in in between here right which there's certainly symbolism there again artists are thinking of this as they're creating this uh these paintings these um these altarpieces, they're thinking, you know, where is the Eucharist going to be in this image? You know, they're, they're, they have that intentionality as they paint this. So, right, Caravaggio, famous for chiaroscuro. There's this lightness here on the Virgin Mary and child. And then there's this, so there's this darkness and they're playing off each other. And you have the pilgrims here. Look at these disgusting, dirty feet down here, right? It's like, why would you? The people thought, why would you put this on a high altar, right? Caravaggio was fascinated by the incarnation, especially this aspect of how dirty and gross life can be. I mean Caravaggio himself, he was not a very uh, a man of high uh, esteem, should I say I mean he was he was convicted of murder. he was banished at one point. I mean this guy was a brawler, he would get into fights. I mean this was someone who had a very troubled life. so he had this kind this fascination in his faith of why would God Become a man like that's so this was so crazy that we're so dirty and filthy. And and he had this sense even back then about how how Christ God becoming man, the Virgin Mary, the their their family life. It would have been very uh, difficult and dirty and there would have been bare feet. There would have been, you know, uh, you know, chunky babiness like there, there was this sort of like uh, I mean, what's in. Credible about Caravaggio is, as we look at this, we can see he does this with such humility, with such reverence. This was not, no one could do what he was doing. This was unprecedented, this idea of having dirty peasants, barefoot Virgin Mary. This was a new thing, but he felt justified in doing this because it is, in fact, the reality of the incarnation. And God comes for the poor. He comes to heal the sick. This is so. This is what we see in this. And, Of course, we know time testing these things. We know now, looking back, that Caravaggio got it exactly right. He's he's not trying something. He's not he's building off the past, right? He's not doing something totally crazy. There's a continuity here, but he is bringing in and pushing the boundaries, seeing where this story is going. So, uh, so this is an incredible image on the altar of what I would say an image of the, of incarnational artistry, God becoming man and being in touch with a sort of dirtier side (laughs) of, of life. This is us. This is us really. When you think about it, we are dirty beggars before Christ and Mary, you know, so.
0: Beautiful. I love that. Um, and this, um, brings us into the Baroque period. Um, there we go oh yeah so um because Caravaggio is more of a baroque artist uh but the baroque civilization the the christendom that continues out of the council of trent continues that same romanitas because it takes this sort of rebirth of paganism comes out of the renaissance which helps to create a greater realism in art and then it christianized that it sort of re-christianizes pagan rome again and creates the baroque civilization that's and one of its characteristics I know is, is an, an intense contrast of light and darkness as you, as you, uh, one could see in that. Yeah. That's,
1: that's, that's one, that's, this is what's so cool about, you know, this is what's so cool about art and like, look at a time where people want to be where, where there is, where uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use, I'll use the word relativism where you can kind of make your own truth and anything can be true and everything is abstract and whatever. I think what, whereas beauty Itself is, we can say, beauty is objective. God himself, God is truth, the true, the good, and beautiful. But this mystery we're looking for, this symbolism we're looking for, this idea of being able to play with light and darkness and art and architecture, there's room for that, you know? There's room for that. There's room to see these symbolisms and to read art. It doesn't, just because something is objective doesn't mean there's this, always this, uh, right answer that's opposed to any other answer. This is what's so beautiful about being Catholic is where the, the same church that would have a queen on one side of Spain would, would make the bread that would there become the, the body and blood of Christ, right? This was the tradition of one side of Spain that the nobles were the ones that had to create the bread that would become the body and blood of Christ. On the other side of Spain, it was the poor who were tasked with that aspect. And both sides have a deep symbolism. It's not one that it's not that one is right and one is wrong, but both show that there's this glory in um, in service at at the mass at the uh, you know at, for the sake of of the incarnation of God becoming man. You know,
0: excellent. So let's talk about uh, Rome as the Eternal City and as a traditional pilgrimage site. There's really three. Well, Oh, go ahead. Yeah,
1: I think just to, to to lead that into that is look for me. So part of part of my work here, of course, I do. I work with with one Peter five, and I'm I'm looking forward to see how this unfolds, Romanitas, and, and the work we're doing together, uh, in terms of bringing Roman ancient culture into the light, and, and seeing how we can continue uh, the story of our our Christian life in an age that's very hostile towards it. I, this is why I love one Peter five. I love working with you, Timothy. My, the other side of my work, though, here is I do coordinate trips and pilgrimages in particular. I actually was just working on one before we did this. There's a priest from New Jersey who will be bringing his parish here. And I'll be working with them uh, on pilgrimage. But that the incarnation, I think, that this incarnational aspect of our faith, the stuff of the faith, the story itself, to be able to touch and feel, this really helps us deepen our relationship with Christ deepen our knowledge of the faith and rome is such a great place to do that unfortunately if we are a catholic especially in the states it's become this merely intellectual thing even so many converts they come into the faith intellectually they they read history and they and they just it makes sense to be catholic but and that's great i'm not taking that away but we need to have the stuff the traditions we need to come back to it and you can see that and and it moves you here when you come to Rome. I mean, it has a way when you go on pilgrimage to Rome. If maybe you're more of a, um, you you might struggle with a kind of scrupulosity in your faith. Rome is a place where you're going to have to kick back and drink some wine and hang out, and 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 uh, and you'll check your scrupulosity. If you're someone who's a little more wild, maybe you you do well to be a little more scrupulous. Rome is a place where you're going to be on your knees as you climb the Santa Scala. The stairs from from Pontius Pilate's praetorium were brought from Jerusalem here to Rome by St Helena and the pilgrims that attend there they you can go you go up the stairs on your knees knowing that these were the steps Jesus climbed as he was sens- sentenced to his crucifixion so it has something that brings a deeper faith to everyone here in Rome and so that's my little piece if anybody has any desire maybe just one person or if you want to organize a trip for your parish, or maybe if you're a priest and you and you really want to put together a real solid spiritual experience here in the Eternal City, I'm your guy. You have a friend in Rome and I'll be able to organize that for you.
0: Excellent. So yeah, you can contact me and I can get you, get you in contact with Vincenzo if you want to go to Rome and Vincenzo can hook you up with the Latin Mass in Rome. Uh, he's done a few reports on that for 1 Peter 5. And he knows where the Latin Mass is. He knows the priests of Rome, and so he can connect you with that. Now, uh, we need to emphasize as, as trads, Rome is really the traditional pilgrimage site of Europe. It's uh, true, yeah. bigger than Compostela, uh, the Camino, bigger than Jerusalem, really, because Jerusalem's too far away for most of our forefathers to go to. Yeah, and, I mean, this uh,
1: is this is part of the reason. Forgive me for interrupting, but this is part of the reason why Helena brought so many artifacts to Rome because it's so hard to get or, from Jerusalem to Rome because it's so hard for so many to get to the Holy Land that there, there's so many sites from the Holy Land that were brought here, not the least of which is the, the pillar of the scourging, for example, is here. The true cross, the, you know, the, the bones of the apostles are here, of course. So, so it's a great place to, to go on pilgrimage.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think that as trads part of our own difficulties that we need to de- develop develop a, a devotion to the city of Rome as a, a centerpiece of our faith um because sometimes we have a disdain for Rome because what goes on in Rome or the hierarchy or the Curia or the Vatican you know the pope um and I think of um there's a story in the Decameron where um there is a Christian and a Jew talking and Christians trying to convert the jew and uh, says decameron's Jew Abraham and so uh, Jew, the Jew says, well, I'm going to go on a pilgrimage to Rome and see what it's all about. And the Christian's like, well, wait, wait, don't go to Rome. Don't, it's terrible there. It's They're all, <laughs> you know, awful Christians there. And the but Jew says, no, I got to go to Rome. So the Jew goes to Rome and then he says, uh, it comes back when he's he's like, I'm definitely going to become a Christian now because I saw, uh, saw how the church is run uh, and there's no way that it could continue to exist unless God was in charge of it. So um, this is the opposite experience of Martin it's Luther true. and his pilgrimage to Rome. Um, but uh, we need we need to look past the fact that the, you know there's difficult, there's evil men in the church, there's corruption and whatnot. God is present, even bringing good out of evil, and He's present in. You can see Him in the city of Rome in these great monuments of our forefathers, and you can catch some of the spirit of our forefathers. Who left these monuments and uh, sweat, blood, died, and passed them down to us, and that's what we're fighting for in the Latin Mass, but also the whole of our heritage, which is so beautifully and manifestly contained in the city of Rome. Excellent. Well, any final thoughts, I can't Vincenzo?
1: Agree with you more. I mean, Rome is Rome. It... Yeah. Oh, I'm just can you hear me? All right. There was a lapse there. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Excellent. In terms of pilgrimage to Rome, Rome is, I mean, there's, there's a history in it's being a city built through, through over the ages as a city for pilgrimage. And it's you know, sure there is a lot of, and Martin Luther witnessed it as well. There's a lot of things we can be scandalized uh uh from this is why it's important to have a good guide this is why it's important to have a good uh faithful guides you know i even mentioned earlier this whole like notion of this uh what do they call that like a, a kind of um retelling of history with respect to michelangelo right you want someone who understands who michelangelo is to be your guide and i can i can help good catholics be connected with good faithful guides who can help their pilgrimage experience be a de- deepening of the faith you know and then also the, these no, this this piece of Rome that's very scandalous the kind of Judas side of Rome or uh, maybe better said the Brutus side of Rome right this kind of betraying side of Rome it's it is important I think for Catholics to see it's it's uh, you, Christ was was not naive he he did not not sin. not naive and it's important for us to be innocent as doves but we're, we're supposed to it up.
0: you're cutting out a little bit vincenzo so i think we'll uh cut to our prayer um at the end of this you were just saying being innocent as sure, doves sure did you get the eyes of serpents you want to try to repeat what you said I think we're losing our That's connection right. a little bit. At the very sure, end. yeah. That... Okay, here, let's let's pray our prayer. So so be sure to uh, like and subscribe to this video. Please share it. And if you want to go on a traditional Catholic pilgrimage to Rome with the Latin Mass in Rome, contact us. Uh, you can also follow Vincenzo on Instagram and Twitter. He's at Instagramdazo uh you can just let's see it's uh, Insta- can you, uh can you hear me now oh yeah i can hear you now
1: okay yeah you can follow me at traditional catholic pilgrimage or instagram Dazzle, either one traditional catholic pilgrimage might be easier for people to remember at okay, traditional sure. catholic pilgrimage
0: traditional and uh catholic pilgrimage
1: and if you can i don't know if you can uh so you can hear me now just to finish that point i was just trying to say that it's important for catholics to be like Christ, that is to not be sinful, but, uh, but to not, that is not engaged in sin, but we're also supposed to not be naive. And when, you, when you're in Rome and you see that betraying side, that brutish side of Rome, uh, you're able to, to there's, it, there's kind of something symbolic there is we will not be a part of this. So we, will, we will be uh, a part of the saints of Rome, the martyrdoms of Rome. This is the, and, and we will engage that. You know, you'll be in the Colosseum as we tell a story of someone like um, saying uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who was k- killed by lions in the Colosseum, so I highly, highly <laughs> would advise. Obviously, I'm. <sighs> Excellent. Oh yeah, you,
0: I got most of that. That's great. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, Saint Ignatius of Libya. Um, or not a loyal of Antioch, uh, martyred in the Colosseum, uh, by lions. I, yeah, one of my favorites is his letter to the Romans, Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, but it's beautiful, excellent. Well, let's, uh, thank you so much, Vincenzo. Let's pray an Ave, uh, to finish this out. So we've got our, um, Russian Catholic icon of Fatima, and we'll offer up an Ave asking our Lord to make us worthy of to be Roman Catholics and to carry this great heritage that we have forward to our children. In nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus.
1: Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen.
0: Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl. Pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Pray for us. Nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen.